Welcome, closers. Today, we have another episode of the Profitable Property Management Podcast coming at you. Season one, focused on marketing. I'm your host, Jordan Moyla, and every week I interview world-class property management entrepreneurs and industry experts who share actionable insights to help you grow your property management empire. Whether you manage a 100 or a 1,000 doors, this is the show that's going to help you see the big picture and get to the next level. I don't throw darts at a board. I bet on sure things. Sweet Sun Tzu, the art of war. Every battle is won before it's ever fought. Think about it. Today, I am talking with John Janch, the man that literally wrote the book on referral-based marketing. In addition to the multiple books that he has written, he is the founder of Duct Tape Marketing, and he has lived, breathed, and sweated small business marketing for many, many years. John, how many years to be exact? You know what? I'm coming up on 2018 will be the start of my 30th year in business. Wow. Man, that's cause for celebration. But long before digital marketing was trendy... Long before social media was an obvious part of the conversation, John was in the trenches helping small business owners figure out how to grow without losing their shirts. It's an honor to have John on the show today to talk about how to build a referral engine within your property management business. John, welcome to the show. Well, thanks. Let's go back to the beginning. How did you get started with duct tape marketing? Well, uh, to, to tell you the truth, I, I went, you know, right out of college, I went to work for an ad agency and I did that for about five years and just really knew I wanted to be able to do my own thing. And so with very little plan, uh, other than the, the sort of confidence that I could hustle work, I uh, started a marketing consulting firm and did just that. I, you know, I got projects, whoever said they'd pay me, whatever kind of work that seemed like I could figure out how to do it. Uh, that's what I would take. But uh, after I started to build that business a little bit, I, I realized that I loved working with small business owners. Uh, but they were a little frustrating and challenging because, you know, they didn't have certainly never had the same budgets. But a lot of times it was just even the, the same you know mentality about investing in marketing or, or resources or attention spans. And so I decided that uh, at some juncture, I needed to create a, a, a process where I could walk in and say, here's what I'm going to do. Here's what you're going to do. Here are the results we hope we can get. And by the way, here's what it costs. I was tired of sending out proposals and coming back and figuring out how to do uh, work uh, you know, based on what the client thought they needed. And, and so I created a very systematic approach to marketing. And uh, it turns out it was really easy to sell, uh, a lot easier to sell than the kind of proposal method because it was, you know, take it or leave it, you want it or not. But what was interesting was that here I was trying to solve kind of my frustration. Uh, I, I realized that I had tapped into a really pretty great frustration in uh, most small businesses. It's really hard to buy marketing services in a comprehensive way. There's everybody selling a piece of the puzzle and so I think business owners get very confused and, and boy, that, you know, has accelerated over the last eight or 10 years, because mm -hmm. all the new channels and things that they now have to try to figure out how to buy. And so somebody coming in with a very comprehensive strategy first approach packaged as a system, turns out that was really very appealing. And that was actually the genesis of, of uh, the term duct tape marketing. I wanted to give it more of a kind of brand feel and product feel almost uh, name. And, you know, really, I built my practice, you know, to to as full as I wanted to have it at, at that time, started uh, 
doing things online because that was uh, heating up. Uh, you know, it was obvious people were going to be able to sell classes and training and, and programs online. And that started attracting actually independent marketing consultants around the world uh, that uh, that wanted to kind of copy or at least license my approach. And uh, so, you know, now we are a you know, multi market, uh, marketing consulting firm who also then uh, spends a great deal of time uh, training and licensing marketing consultants. And we have about 150 of those folks around the world now, um, all installing the duct tape marketing system. All right. So that's a great overview. Things have obviously mushroomed. That initial mustard seed has now yielded a much larger operation. But it all comes back to the small business. That is your forte. You are not John Jance, the Fortune 5 or 500 guy. You've traditionally really glommed on to helping the small businesses in particular. Did you ever have any industry or vertical focus or no? Not really. Um, I, I did. T- I did find that there were a couple industries that were very seemed very attracted to that idea of a systematic approach. So I know early on, uh, home service, you know, construction, you know, remodelers, plumbers, HVAC folks, uh, and then uh, professional services folks. So uh, I actually, uh, you know, my my initial practice when I was, you know, essentially a, a solo. Uh, consultant uh, was kind of made up of home services and professional services like uh, so so the other half was a you know small accounting firms small law firms Nice. So I'm a big believer in the cross-application of knowledge from other similar industries. And to me, when I say similar, I mean other industries that have similar dynamics in terms of the type of sales. So similar transaction size. In our case with property management, it's a less complex sale. There's really one primary stakeholder that you're talking to, and the deal is going to have a much shorter sale cycle than selling IT to Fortune 500 companies. All the industries you mentioned, in addition to real estate, mortgage, insurance, etc., all have similar dynamics. So there's a lot of lessons that can be cross-applied from one to the other. And I couldn't think of anything more foundational in that regard than referrals. So it doesn't matter what industry you're in. If you are selling to humans, referrals are going to be a big part of your business. Could you kind of give me your your feedback or your perspective on where referrals as a marketing strategy fit in as contrasted versus digital or traditional offline like mailers, etc. What's unique about referral marketing? Well, I, I can't go very far without saying all of this stuff is integrated. Uh, of to, course. You know, it's all part of the journey. But the, the really impactful thing about referrals is that they can move people along the journey very quickly. So in other words, if, if somebody is not even aware of your business, uh, but a friend tells them about it, tells them about the great result that you got them, well, all of a sudden, you know, trust is in, in the mix now. Uh, they have a you know, pretty thorough understanding of your study. And so you know, that buyer or potential buyer has probably moved you know, pretty far along to at least – I mean, you've, you've still got to perform, but but they're at least, you know, maybe some of the skepticism is gone. They're not so price sensitive uh, that, that that's the whole thing driving uh, everything. So it, it really fits in, I think, as a great um, kind of a lead generation awareness piece. Uh, but it is uh, I think it is really um, so potent because of the trust that that that's sort of inherent in it. Yeah, absolutely. And you talk in the book about how 
people want to give referrals and to receive referrals in the sense that when we think about purchasing in any given category, we don't actually want to evaluate the thousand possible vendors. Maybe at most we'd like to have three to five to have some semblance of an even-handed fair analysis. But really, we want the process to be as simplified as possible. And a referral makes that as easy as possible. And when you refer to someone else, it feels good, right? You're able to kind of, as an extension of the positive connotations that you have with that business, it's something that you're able to project about yourself to be able to pass on that sage advice. Yeah, I, th- I think there's two elements in play. I think there are a lot of people, uh, and, and this is why I say people are wired to refer. I think there are a lot of people that, that that see that as a way to add value to their relationship. So in other words, if if I have a whole group of clients out here that I work with, and I can build a team of people that I know and trust that are best of class, that, that anytime my client says, hey, do you need, know anybody who does X? I'm actually able to confidently tell them somebody uh, that I think can help them solve mm-hmm. it. And, and so I think there are a lot of people that realize that makes them more valuable. Uh, to you know to that client, but I think there's also a lot of people that find a, a, a great deal of pleasure in the social proof <laughs> that comes from or the social capital. I'm sorry uh, that that comes from uh, giving referrals. And so you know there are a lot of people that like to be seen as the you know if you need an answer or if you need to find a referral, you go to this person. They'll you know they can tell you who you ought to be uh, talking to in that town or in that industry. And so I, I think a lot of that uh, drives a lot of uh, referrals and probably the third piece is is this idea of reciprocity. I think there's a lot of people that that believe that that by making referrals, um, you know, and sometimes in very tangible ways, uh, they will receive uh, those same uh, in, in kind. So we can't go very far in this conversation without talking about reputation. What's your quick take from when you started to now, how the rise of sites like Yelp, Google Reviews, etc., behaviorally, how do you think it has approached how people give and receive referrals? Well, I think the, the thing that, that those kind of sites, and, and you can throw everything in there because anybody can publish a review about your site. You know, you may have a whole True. channel on YouTube dedicated to, to your business, if, uh, if, particularly if you're not taking care of people. Um, so I think that, that the, the good news is there's really nowhere to hide. If you are not keeping your promises, if you are you know, doing things that, uh, that are not in the best interest of your customers, people are going to find out. Um, the flip side of that, of course, is that if you are exceeding people's expectations, if, if you are doing something so remarkable that they can't help not talk about it, you're going to benefit from that uh, dramatically. And so, you know, whether it's just word of mouth, you know, inside of a Facebook group or, or you know, a Google review or a Yelp review, um, I think that that has to be seen as a form of content that you intentionally stimulate and create. Mm-hmm. Without trying to manipulate things, of course. When people think about referrals, I feel like that one of the, the simplified approach or the simplified mindset is that, well, you know, referrals just come from having good service, right? That's all it is. You just, you just be a good service provider. What, what would you say to somebody that, that is kind of thinking that way? Well, I think that's the barrier to entry, I suppose. I mean, you certainly have to be referable. But what I find is that 
you know, even the firms that are doing a tremendous job, um, unless they do something to, you know, go beyond the accidental referral, uh, they, they won't be taking advantage of, of this powerful, you know, referability that they've built. Uh, you have to have, you, you know, everybody's busy uh, today. Uh, you know, not everybody knows you want a referral <laughs> today. So I think you have to be doing some things on a very intentional basis to stay top of mind, to remind people about referrals, to help people understand the value that they're receiving uh, so that they can uh, feel really good about passing that value on to others. All right. Well, that's a great segue into talking about the concept of the referral engine. Walk me through a basic game plan for intentionally and effectively generating referrals in your business. Well, the first is to to understand kind of where it fits in the journey. I think a lot of people go, they get a client, they do good work, you know, that client maybe starts talking about, you know, what a great job they've done and, and kind of then the light bulb goes on, oh, I should maybe ask for a referral here. That's, you know, that's pretty late. <laughs> and mm-hmm. Obviously, that is a place where you want to be getting referrals. But I like to try to get people to move it way up in the journey. And what I mean by that is that uh, everybody that you're working with, maybe even that you're talking with, and maybe you've, maybe you've agreed on something, maybe you're getting close to agreeing on them becoming a customer, I like to move the message of referrals uh, into that spot. And what I mean by that is that you know it might typically go something like this. Um, hey, Jordan, I, I, we know that you are going to be so thrilled by <laughs> what we agreed upon today that we're actually going to come back and in 90 days. First off, we're going to make sure you're thrilled. And at that point, uh, we're going to ask if you might uh, introduce us to three other people that you know need this same result. Um, and in the sales process, starting that conversation, there's so many positives to that. I mean, if you think about it, you're essentially, uh, as a marketing message, you're essentially guaranteeing <laughs> that they're going to be thrilled, that you're guaranteeing that you're going to come back and make sure they're thrilled, um, and, and then you're going to give them the opportunity to make a referral. And everybody that I've ever worked with over the years that, that gets their people thinking that way, um, you, you get almost 100% agreement uh, on that in, in the very beginning. And so then mm-hmm. it's so much easier after you've done your job to then come back and say, remember when we had that talk about <laughs> referrals? Um, because you, you, you've, they've agreed to that. I mean, it's mm-hmm. expectation. And so, you know, that, um, that's, that's the place that, um, that, that, you know, that's probably the first start is, is to kind of change your mindset to thinking about, uh, those in the very beginning. Um, after that, you know, the, and, and obviously every industry is different, but you want to think about a couple ways that you can kind of low pressure, low, you know, threshold be dripping out. You know, it might, it might be, you know, once a quarter sending out gift certificate that says, Hey, you know, give this to a friend and they get a hundred dollars off. And, uh, for every one of these that comes back, you know, maybe you get something or earn something. Um, so, so just kind of having some of those kind of campaigns, uh, always out there. Um, and then the, the, the last piece, well, there's really two pieces, I guess. Um, a lot of people just, I mean, maybe they're thanking their referral sources, but what what I we find is that if you actually take those p- folks that are you know predetermined to ref- you know maybe they've already referred you, uh, they just seem to be people that like to do that and, and build kind of a champion community around them. Do something to really make them feel special to make them feel more engaged, uh, to add more value to the relationship. I mean, even if you're bringing your customers together, 
those ones that are referral champions, bringing them together a couple times a year, uh, there's a pretty good chance that they're going to find value in just you know those you know meeting those folks that that are also your customers. So you know doing things you know three or four things. There isn't any one thing, but three or four things to really kind of embed referrals into your entire you know marketing strategy. Um, and then the last piece, and and really, you know, I could we could do a whole show just on this. Um, most people focus uh, solely on customers, and and of course that makes total sense because they've experienced how great you are. But there's a really good chance that if you built a strategic partner network of you know kind of like-minded, best-of-class, non-competing businesses, you know that and and, and find ways to actually um, not only refer those folks, but do content with those folks, do workshops with those folks, um, you know, really build this kind of formal network. There's a really good opportunity there, I think, to uh, uh, to 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 get to the point where, you know, your primary source of lead generation is coming from this strategic partner network. Wow, a lot of good nuggets in there. I'll say that none of that is rocket science. Like this is not crazy digital tech that you need a programmer to implement. A lot of this is common sense and it's basic blocking and tackling. But John, here's the the example that comes to mind. You know how when you go into Subway or you go into McDonald's, if it's a well-run business, they're going to ask you if you want a soft drink, right? Mm -hmm. They're going to ask you for that high-margin upsell. And the person that's going to do that is as far from corporate as that they can get. But corporate made an intentional decision that organizationally a big piece of their infrastructure is to train their people to repetitively go through these consumer-facing actions that have a high correlation with overall profitability. Referrals are a part of that. So at the end of the day, somebody hearing this podcast right now, they're going to say, yes, John, obviously we should be asking for referrals. But given that you have worked with businesses that have tried to put this in place, what are the primary bottlenecks and hangups and things that go wrong from a business owner having a light bulb moment to actually putting this into place six months after they read your book? I find that a lot of business owners get this, uh, but then they kind of just pass it on as an initiative and just, you know, hope all the salespeople or business development people, you know, just do it. By gosh, they ought to be doing it, right? <laughs> and I think it's one of those things that it has to become, it has to become really part of the culture. Uh, so it's not a kind of one and done thing. It has to be something that's talked about that is measured. Uh, that's probably the, the, the biggest uh, component is that, you know, make it, make it one of your key performance indicators. You know, how many referrals are we getting? How many reviews are we getting? How many compliments are we getting? How many unsolicited, you know, emails of thanks? Are we receiving? If you if you start you know measuring those and making you know targets that are just kind of those simple little you know parts of the whole, uh, you'll find that it really helps people focus on uh, on on referral generation and and really from a marketing standpoint, you know when we really try to go into an organization and say you know let's embed this as a as a key component, um, we will actually look at their entire. And, and I think this is where people drop the ball is a lot of times when they think of marketing, they think of, you know, getting the click, getting the appointment, getting the sale, and that kind of ends there. And so a lot of times what we will do is we'll kind of work backwards. We'll say, what if we want everyone, you know, 100% of our customers 
referring us? You know, what is that going to have to look like? What do, what do we want that customer feeling, thinking, doing 90 days after the transaction? You know, maybe 45 days after, at the time of transaction. And really start building uh, a, a better customer experience as part of our overall marketing, because uh, I, I will tell you that that you know there's the the, the best uh, source of lead generation is a whole bunch of happy customers, and so if we focused more on time, more time on that customer experience component, and kind of worked backwards to how do we make the phone ring, um, it, it really can change kind of how everybody views what marketing is. Absolutely, if, if every customer referred at least one other customer, you've crossed the magic viral coefficient and your business is, is effectively going to have unlimited growth. We know that we can't all necessarily achieve that, but we could probably make a, a much bigger impact than we are right now. I love that you suggested measuring it. Can you give any insight on how you would think about framing that issue in terms of metrics, KPIs, and kind of expectations if, if you ran a property management business? Well, I think the first would just start with, with goals. I mean, what can you measure? I mean, sometimes attributing a sale to you know one tactic or one channel can be very difficult. Uh, but if there was a way to break down you know how many introductions you were getting, I mean, what's kind of a, what what are the small things that you can impact? So and and then get your people focusing on those. So it might be how many introductions have you gotten? How many you know meetings where you could get somebody to you know inter, you know to join you at that meeting? Uh, how many you know actual referrals uh, you might be getting? And and if, create those as as you know. I mean, so often, particularly when you know we're talking about salespeople, they're all they're measured by is that sale. You know, could you would. Would there be activities that they could do that would, you know, ultimately are positive that will will lead to that sale component and start breaking those down and measuring them? So those might be those might be lunches, those might be coffee meetings, those might be um, you know referrals, those might be networking events uh, that that you know all are going to. Uh, are, are going to be very small, measurable, identifiable activities that you know are going to lead to the whole of more referrals and more sales. Love it. So it's the expanding part of your funnel. We've all seen the funnel graphic, right? At the top, it's wide. It gets narrower and narrower. But if you're doing what John's talking about, after that sale, hopefully your funnel actually starts to get wider again as the referrals happen. You mentioned earlier uh, putting incentives out there. I was talking with a client the other day. They were talking about the challenges that they are experiencing trying to get other realtors to refer them business. In theory, there's a lot of synergy here, right? The property manager manages the home for as long as it's a rental, but when it's ready for sale, then it can get passed back to the realtor. So in theory, there's no conflict of interest here. This gentleman was kind of articulating how he was really struggling getting over the incentive and the conversation was all about the money and the realtor wanted more money than he was willing to pay. And my kind of response to that was, if you're having a conversation and a dialogue and you're getting hung up on money, you've at least got somebody that is on some level interested or else they wouldn't be talking to you at all. You've got to focus on the other soft ancillary sorts of things. When we talk about the non-monetary incentives, particularly with that vendor network concept, how would you approach incentivizing other businesses to send you business? Well, 
I, you know, I think it has to, it's the problem that a lot of people have is that they want to look at it as, as a transaction. Um, you send me this, I'll give you that. And so it's so limited in a lot of ways in its value. But if you start thinking about this kind of network approach, it, it starts having value beyond just the transaction. So, you know, when, when we work with folks, uh, and help them build strategic partner networks. What we'll do is, first off, we'll we'll identify the best of class, and you know we'll we'll kind of introduce this idea of a strategic network. But that idea, you know, can't stop just at you send me leads, I'll send you leads, uh, because today we need uh, we need podcast interviews, <laughs> we need uh, content on our website, we need webinars, we need guests for those webinars, and so if you start thinking about all these ways that you can actually you can. You know, you can get somebody a link. You can get somebody exposure. Uh, you can get them more traffic to their website. Um, all of a sudden, you you know, you start kind of piling on all these benefits of working together, and the referral actually becomes almost a side benefit of all of that work together. What typically goes wrong? Because I think everybody would love to do that, but where does that typically break down when somebody tries to put that into practice? Well, where I see breakdown is a couple of places. Uh, too much scorekeeping. You know, I sent you four leads, you only sent me two, um, is is a potential place. And I think what you have to do is, you, again, you have to think, you know, what's the whole benefit of this? I'm, you know, my, I'm building my expertise. I'm building my reputation as being a part of this or as being maybe the person that facilitates this. And the universe will kind of keep score of that. Uh, I, I think that's probably, you know, the number one, uh, uh, you know, issue that people run into. The, the thing that causes a lot of that sometimes or those issues sometimes is that we, we also pick the wrong people. Uh, to be a part of that. And, and by wrong, I don't mean that they are inherently wrong. <laughs> Just, you know, maybe don't have the same mindset. They're not, you know, we're not, uh, you know, the point of view is not let's build this thing so we can all get referrals. The point of view starts with let's build this thing so that we can be uh, so ultimately valuable to our clients. In fact, you know, I would tell people that there is there is a, a reason enough to build this strategic network if you never got referrals. So and by that, I mean, if you're actually able to increase the value, your value to your customers hmm. is probably reason enough to do it. Well, so this is all about playing the long game, right? You got to have a big picture yeah. perspective and that's what makes it viable or not viable. Back to the short game, I'm curious, what do you think about BNI or traditional networking groups? So I think networking groups can be great. I mean, they can also be a dramatic drain of time and worth mm -hmm. too. I mean, that's the challenge. So if you're going to take something like BNI that people are familiar with and that probably has today four or 5,000 uh, chapters – like everything, you're going to find some uh, some BNI chapters that people will tell you it is the number one source of business for them, and you're going to find some BNI chapters that people are going to tell you it, you know they were in it for a few months and it was a total waste of time. They are very like like the strategic partner network that I talked about. They are very much like that, <laughs> and so uh, the the question then comes down to who's in that network, um, and and the challenge sometimes with uh, an organization where you just go and you join is that you know you don't really have relationships with the people there. You don't maybe even by reputation know who they are, um, and so if you get in a group that is you know not the same mindset about the long-term game as you are then it might not be that fulfilling hmm. 
Before we go on, I want to mention our show sponsor, the PM Grow Summit, which is happening at the end of January in 2018. If you consider yourself a growth-minded property management entrepreneur, this is the place to be. Best-in-class entrepreneurs, networking, and speakers, you want to be at the PM Grow Summit. One of those speakers is John Jantz. Now, if you're thinking about going, you can go to pmgrowsummit.com and you can enter the coupon code JORDAN, J-O-R-D-A-N, to get $100 off your first ticket. John, you travel a lot. You've been to many, many conferences by now. If we just cut through all the BS, give me the 80-20 on when a good conference is well executed in your mind, what does an attendee walk away with? Well, certainly, um, and, and I think this is what attracts people, uh, certainly knowledge, you know, new ideas. I mean, you, you guys spend a lot of time uh, and money uh, attracting uh, speakers that are hopefully going to share some, some amazing, useful information. But what ends up happening is, in the end, um, when people go away from these things and think they are, you know, just some of the best time they've spent, it's it's really kind of what goes on at the breaks and at mm. at the masterminding tables and and the, you know the ways that that they can you know just really get down and talk to people about challenges they're having, talk to others about you know successes they're having, um, and I think it's a combination of those. And so to me, um, you know, really well run conferences uh, offer kind of both of those things. They offer really great insight from people that are maybe doing or have done what you want to do, uh, but they also offer plenty of opportunities for you to kind of get your own very specific challenges and opportunities addressed. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, the networking is a big deal. That's why the folks that come to the PM Grow Summit are property management entrepreneurs, and really the E should be first, right? That's the primary orientation of a successful business owner. They're an entrepreneur first, and they happen to be in real estate, insurance, whatever the vertical may be. It's not that it doesn't matter. It's just that if you're really focused on serious success, that E has to take primacy. At least that's my take on it. Back to the vendor network that we were discussing a second ago, I want to talk about how you have internalized your own advice. Because what I find is these little nuances in the model or the approach can have such a profound impact, particularly when there is a passionate perspective behind it. In your case, you mentioned early on that you have kind of an, an army of consultants and implementers that are an extension of your brand and of your life's work that are your first line of defense and your boots on the ground. Talk to me about what led you to go that route and some of the other paths you you did or could have taken prior to launching that strategy. Well, I think the, the, the main thing came down to, I was very passionate about who I'm serving. I really love working with small business owners. So there was a real desire to expand that, to scale, you know, what I was able to do. Uh, and, and frankly, there are kind of two pretty obvious paths. You either, you know, do maybe something like what I've done or you hire employees. Um, and I think the world that we're living in today allows us to, to not have to have the, uh, the office and the employees. And while I do have uh, a staff for kind of our headquarters kind of needs, um, I really didn't want to add uh, consultants uh, as employees to do that. 
Um, and fa- and so I decided to kind of take the sort of very nimble approach of uh, really training other folks and licensing this to other folks uh, uh, with the the idea that I could have as much or more impact, quite frankly, because those folks are now out there uh, saving small businesses, <laughs> as I like to talk about it, um, you know, by the thousands now. Um, and so I was able to really scale the impact that I could have. And uh, I, I guess you could say certainly um, – you know, with a lot less risk than uh, maybe, you know, adding the infrastructure that it would take to support a, a, you know, internal employee network. Well, let's talk about the risk. How do you protect your brand? How do you protect the dilution of what is effectively your life's work, your your reputation when you're dealing with these people that are not direct reports? I, I get asked that question a lot. And there certainly are people that are just adamant about that. I, you know, again, my real purpose was just uh, I know this can sound a little philanthropic, <laughs> but my real purpose in life is to serve the small business owners um, and not necessarily to grow my brand to this you know, big thing that was about me. Um, and so that probably gives me a little less stress about somebody that maybe is veered off of my brand <laughs> or my uh, exact approach because the, the the need for what we do in, in you know working with small business owners, particularly as all this digital stuff came on, is so immense that you know even if somebody is not you know again I I wouldn't tolerate somebody who was dishonest or you know. Uh, misrepresenting what they could do. But if somebody's a little off, you know, of what, you know, my brand is or my approach is, but they're still helping small business owners, I think that's uh, that's a big delivery on uh, what our brand is all about. Now, having said that, uh, you, you you do have to, I think, um, invest it more in you know, training and relationship building. I mean, we don't just sell a certification course and say, go, you know, good luck. Uh, I mean, we uh, meet four times a year in person. Uh, we have, you know, twice a month training calls. I mean, we do uh, a ridiculous amount of training and onboarding and uh, mentoring in the first six months when somebody joins. So we've invested a tremendous amount in in really doing all we can to kind of make sure that people are delivering on what duct tape marketing stands for. Uh, but I'm, you know, I'm not a dictator by any means as far as, you know, how people get results. Yeah, that, that makes sense. The, the sum is bigger than its parts. I want to follow up with a question about content marketing. You've written several books. When you think about the benefit that came from that, how far into your, into your career before, were you before you wrote the first book? Well, I'd had my own business for quite a while, but duct tape marketing, you know, kind of that version, uh, which was a pretty big pivot in, say, 2002 or so, uh, because I had been doing kind of more traditional, you know, local marketing. And uh, 2002 is when I really went online and um, created the name duct tape marketing. Uh, The book uh, duct tape marketing actually came out in 2006. So I know a lot of operators that have been in the business, like you said at that point, for 10, 20 years, and the idea of writing a book still sounds profoundly difficult and intimidating. Having written multiple books now, do you have any thoughts or perspective on who writing a book or what kind of a business writing a book is or is not for? Well, so 
This is a really big philosophical question because you, you know, you'll ask a lot of authors and they'll say, you shouldn't write a book unless you have something to say. And it's a big idea. And, <laughs> you know, sure, I, sure. You know, I tend to believe that every business can benefit from a book. Now, you know, there are different ways to benefit <laughs> from a book. Fortunately, my books have sold very well. They were traditionally published books. Um, I have made a lot of revenue uh, from my books. Um, that they've, you know, further paid off because, you know, I was starting to speak and uh, all of a sudden, you know, you get a best selling book and now your speaking fee is four times what it was. Mm-hmm. So, you know, so they've paid off in many, many ways for me. But, you know, I, I have, uh, you know, single you know lawyers, I mean, single meaning uh, uh, solo, um, you know, lawyers that I've, you know, helped create content and had them write a book. And that book all of a sudden made them the the expert in their little corner of the world for their type of practice. So there can be tremendous credibility and and, you know, kind of tangible expertise that can come out of a, a book. And of course, it's become very easy to uh, to publish one these days. Right. So there's a book and then there's a book, right? You can do traditional publishing or you can do any book. And along that nexus, there's varying level of, of appropriateness and, and ROI for business owners. I, I think that's probably the right answer. That makes sense. I want to transition now to the rapid fire section of the interview. I want to go through some questions and just get some guttural answers from you. And the first question is this, John, who do you learn from? Well, I read about a hundred books a year. So. Still, <laughs> still, this John, we gotta just pause on that. I, I'm always profoundly blown away by the fact that the folks that are the furthest ahead are the, like on on an absolute level. The folks that you feel like are so far ahead of where you're at are still maniacally focused on getting further ahead, as if their life depended upon it. That blows my mind. You still read a hundred books a year. Wow. Yeah, I, I think it's partly occupational hazard. I mean, yeah, I do interviews like you. I interview a lot of authors, so I, I actually read their books um, if I'm going to interview them. Uh, but I, I also, um, I'm also just insatiably curious. I love to read books. I mean, you know, I'm reading a book about uh, the, the culture of wolves um, <laughs> right now that I find just absolutely fascinating, and I get so many ideas out of those odd books that seemingly have nothing to do with with business or marketing but you know ultimately have so much to do with life and that's you know that's in the end that's where we all are <laughs> is living life um and so i just uh, you know i've just i've done it i loved it when i you know I, my favorite classes in college were literature classes so i mean i I've, I've done it my whole life and i continue to do it because i enjoy it i suppose well, as a bibliophile, let me ask you my next rapid-fire question, which is what books have impacted you the most? Well, probably the one um, – there's probably others that have impacted me in other ways. But the book that really helped me shape what duct tape marketing was going to look like is a book by Peter Drucker called The Practice of Management. Mm. Not a marketing book per se, but really the first book I read that made – kind of made me understand this idea of systems and process and how important they are in an everyday business. Mark it down. I haven't read it. I've read The Effective Executive by Peter Drucker and found it to be profoundly insightful, but he's he's kind of hailed as like the management theorist, theorist of the century, right? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So John, next question. Being honest, were you an internet skeptic or an early adopter? 
I was very much an early adopter, um, and, and and it wasn't because I was like, this is where we're headed. I just liked it. <laughs> I thought it was cool, um, and and so you know, I really kind of dug in and. And even blogging, you know, I started blogging in 2003. I, I suspect mm. there were about 10 marketing bloggers, you know, at the time. Um, and it wasn't because I just said, this is the wave of the future. It, it just, I, I was already publishing content. In fact, I was, I, I, before we had the internet, I was writing articles for, for newspapers and for magazines. Um, and so to me, it just saw, I just immediately saw it as a great way to distribute the content, uh, that I was already, you know, kind of fully producing. So, uh, it just made sense to me. Hmm. Next question, John, do you view mission as a necessity or a luxury? Meaning when people talk about purpose, why, et cetera, it's usually successful people that are talking about that. So there can be some suspicion of, you know, is this selection bias? The people that are left are passionate about it. For the person that is just struggling to put food on the table, how would you tell them to think about mission and purpose as it relates to business? Well, I, I think I'd add one other thing to that too. A lot of times when you achieve a level of success, it's because you got good at something and then you got good at making money at that something and voila, you know, it became your purpose. And I think that, you know, sometimes I don't think that I think the challenge is as you're getting started, it's very difficult to sit down and say, here is my mission. You know, here is my purpose. I've got it all figured out. Now I just have to, you know, connect the dots. But I do think that in my business, um, you know, purpose has this, this purpose of serving small business owners. I love working with small business owners, you know, has driven and does today, you know, drive a lot of my uh, decisions. It drives a lot of, of what I think about writing. It drives a lot of, of what I think about producing as, as products. It, it, it drives a lot of what I won't do. <laughs> um, and, and I think that, Having that as a filter, whether you call it mission or, you know, core beliefs or, again, there are lots of terms for that. I do think that it, it helps to have those types of things as a filter because, you know, it's really easy to chase after the next new thing and, uh, and uh, you know, get uh, kind of overwhelmed with, with whatever it is, email or, you know, all the things that we have to do in a day. And I think if you – you have this filter of purpose or mission where you're able to kind of say, all right, if I have to make a decision about these two things, you know, does this one serve my purpose or better or that one? And I, I think it's a great tool for, for something like that. It's clarifying. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. Next question, John, what's the hardest no you've ever had to give in your career? Hmm. I'm not very good at no. That's a, <laughs> that, that's a problem. Um, the hardest no. Oh, maybe the inverse of that was what was the, what was the worst yes you, you, you forgave? <laughs> well, I tell sometimes a, a story about a, a client of mine that went to jail. Um, and, you know, I wasn't, I didn't particularly like the guy. Uh, I knew he was probably doing some things that uh, were, you know, not uh, all above board. Um, and so what I would guess I would say is that, you know, that, you know, learning that and being involved in that experience was was a thing that taught me that, you know, I needed to pick my clients and, and that I, you know, I, I had to get very, very clear on who I would work with and who made an ideal client. Um, and, and 
So I don't know if that's, I'm not sure I'm answering your question, but that to me uh, was a, I, I think or a big no, you know, but, but uh, um, that was a case where I should have said no. Um, and so, you know, so the big learning, I suppose, in that was, you know, how to actually start analyzing who I'd work with from that day forward. Yeah, that's another one of those truisms that you kind of have to have the scars before you're really ready to fully own it. Last question of the interview is this. John, in your opinion, are entrepreneurs born or bred? Hmm. That's a great question. Um, I'm going to waffle for a while. I, I know you want just a yes or no, um, but uh, in, in my experience, there is something that is unique about entrepreneurs. Uh, now, I think that can be born, but I think it, I, I do think it can be learned. Um, and, and to me, you know, when people ask me kind of what I think the, the core skill of an entrepreneur is, I think one of them is curiosity. Um, you know, most entrepreneurs are really driven by the fact that they get to learn something new every day, that they get to work with different people, that they get to throw, be thrown into situations they've never been in before. I think most entrepreneurs will tell you that's some of the, the most exciting work that they get to do. So, you know, I think lacking those qualities and, and not being willing to embrace those qualities uh, probably is going to make your entrepreneurial journey pretty tough. All right. Well, you know, of the folks that I've asked that question to, I'd say about a quarter uh, are like right off the bat. They're hard. Yes, no. Yeah. Maybe maybe another 25 are, are mostly one side or the other, but they account for the other. But about half are, are pretty much where, where you're at, pretty much accounting for both. And I don't know that there is any right or wrong answer, but in the business that we're in, it certainly is something worth thinking about. John, I appreciate you coming on the show today. If folks want to learn more about what you're doing, the first thing I suggest that they do is go to pmgrowsummit.com and buy your ticket. John is going to be there in person. Find him at the bar after his talk. Ask him questions about your specific problems. John specifically is going to be talking about building a great, a fantastic, a SEO efficient, a high converting website. It's going to be a great talk and I'm going to be there in the front row and asking questions during the Q&A afterwards. But I know that not everybody listening to this can be there in San Diego in January. So if folks want to find you online now or before then, where's the best place for them to go? Well, the easiest place is to uh, to simply go to ducttapemarketing.com, and that's D-U-C-T-T-A-P-E, marketing.com. Great name. Great guy. John, thanks again for coming on. Look forward to seeing you in San Diego. Yeah, that's going to be great, Jordan. Thanks. 